to the Urantia Audio Podcast. Thank you again for joining me. It's good to have you here. And this time up, I'm going to go into the archives and uh, I dug up an interview that I did with Dr. Philip Calabrese back in 2017. And we talked about something I think that's pretty relevant to the revelation, and it has to do with the scientific predictions that the Urantia book uh, makes or asserts prior to the discovery of the very science that the Arantia book talks about in the book, and not just science, but in other realms of study as well, which we'll discuss in just a second. There's going to be a scientific symposium at the Arantia Foundation next June, and they are soliciting people who want to participate. Go to the Arantia.org website, you'll get more information on that. So I thought in honor of the fact that this is going to be a huge event, and Dr. Philip Calabrese is uh, the author of, a, of an essay called The Coming of the Scientific Validations of the Urantia Book. And so you can expect that he may maybe possibly attend and elaborate on some of the things that he talked about in this interview from 2017. So we'll do that, and I appreciate you joining me. Don't forget, always check on the UrantiaRadio.net website for news and information, what's going on in the global Urantia com- community. Also great articles, and then also a way for you to contact me if there's something that you'd like to uh, have discussed on the Urantia Audio Podcast. So again, UrantiaRadio.net, sort of the uh, the boutique that represents the Urantia Radio Podcast. So with that, we now bring in this interview from 2017 and Philip Calabrese on the Urantia Audio Podcast. Dr. Philip Calabrese is a former professor of mathematics and has long researched the science of the Urantia book. His paper, The Coming Scientific Validation of the Urantia Book, is a comprehensive analysis of the papers, and specifically, Dr. Calabrese pointed to at least 48 examples of the Urantia book either predicting or verifying information that previous to its publication in 1955 was simply not confirmed yet by science. Dr. Calabrese, through an intimate knowledge of statistics, calculated that no human being could have been correct in predicting the subject matter that we are about to discuss and that the odds that the authors would have guessed correctly are astronomically high. So we'll talk about that. Take us back to that time. Um, I never came upon the the Arantia book until it was, I guess, the um, summer of 1970. And it was love at first sight. <laughs> really? Because I had had a, a religious experience uh, the December before that. And um, so I had, um, I guess, been prepared to uh, have it put in front of me. And uh, I really devoured it in about four and a half months uh, when I had some time between uh, uh, class years, you know, in the summertime. Uh, had some time to read it. So I really uh, knew nothing about the Urantia book, uh, or at least not. no one ever put it in front of me, or not that I know, knew about it. I wasn't in connected with the, the Urantia community at all. And as I said, it was pretty much love at first sight because I had been uh, saying some of the things that I found uh, in the Urantia book, only uh, much more clear. <laughs> Sure. A lot clearer than I had um, tentatively formulated. Was there so, any particular uh, paper that really grabbed you? Was there any particular subject matter in the book that really 
grabbed you. I know uh, Dr. Sadler and Meredith Sprunger, longtime uh, promoter of the book who recently passed away, said that it was the apostles and the way that the book described the apostles' personalities sort of uh, caused both yeah, gentlemen. Yeah, I to remember th- reading yeah. that, too, sure. about Dr. Sadler. I guess the, uh, you know, the concept of the thought adjuster and the connection uh, to God that we each have um, was something that, you know, was part of that religious experience, and and, uh, so that was corroborated. Um, And there were uh, so many other things that, um, what I did was, I used Clyde Bedell's Concordex, which was the only search engine, so to speak, at the time, and uh, followed up um, various concepts that uh, were important to me, such as uh, time and space and matter and uh, energy and spirit and topics like that. I wanted to see what the Rancho book said about them. So I used uh, the Concordex to really investigate each of those concepts until I, you know, from all parts of the book. And then, you know, I got an idea, well, this is what it says about that uh, particular idea. And that gave me the vocabulary to some degree to go back and, well, then I read all part four. And then I went back and read the whole book, including part four. And, uh, so I was hitting it like, you know, several hours a day during the summertime, um, I can recall. And, uh, well, it was just one paper after another uh, that was so impressive. So, uh, Growing up as a... I can't really say it was one paper or the other that, mm-hmm. uh, that did it. I know paper 42 has been always a very important one for me uh, that goes into... Um, energy and, and mind and force matter, and yeah. mass and, sure. and uh, things of that sort, which which are pretty uh, pretty relevant today, even today, even though it's sixty five years, uh, sixty seven years after it was published. As a as a scientist, you know, reading the scope of of the book and what it has to say about things that normally wouldn't be associated with anything that would be religious but didn't you did you ever ask yourself why are we being given this information well i mean i think the urantia book itself uh, says pretty good uh, why we're why we're getting this information now it says that the world is is going through uh, a transition that and we are uh, you know we've set off uh, on uh, and left the, the safe harbors and we're now on the high seas. We're we're going to be changing very quickly, and uh, I think we've, we're seeing that um, in a global level, especially in the economic area, uh, and in the communication area, and in our uh, technology. We're going to have to teach our our people new skills, and uh, so the Arantia book I think is here because we. Uh, We've come to pretty much a, an end to uh, development that's progressive, and we need another uh, upstep. We need uh, another revelation, and I think the Arantia book is going to provide it. But 
um, things are slow. You know, we think of it in terms of one lifetime, uh, whereas uh, the world is is moving at uh, you know slower pace than uh, than that. Although, from a cultural point of view, right now we're moving very quickly. We've got new things happening so fast that we need to learn how to adapt to that. In case you're joining us here on Candidly Speaking, Dr. Philip Calabrese, a noted researcher and mathematician, joining us on uh, your Rancher Radio. Let's go through some of the, in your 48 points, what gave you the idea to, you know, aggregate all of these things? Were the, uh, and certainly there's probably more than a thousand statements in the Urantia book that are considered revelatory, but these 48 meant something to you. Uh, so explain how you came about and, and put this this research project together. Well, you know, uh, for years uh, people have been pointing out uh, when something gets uh, noted in the popular press or in scientific uh, literature how um, the Arantia book seems to have predated uh, that revelation or that discovery. And um, so other people who maybe are skeptical say, yeah, of course, you know, uh, you're cherry picking or uh, what about all the, the things that uh, are false uh, that have been uh, claimed uh, by, by contemporary standards that aren't accepted. Um, so since, uh, you know, I did do a lot of teaching of statistics, I decided to actually design a statistical test of the hypothesis that the Urantia book science could have been written by with just human knowledge uh, and published in 1955. And so it, it was a matter of trying to prove that this is not a book that could have been written by human beings, uh, or at least very implausibly so. Uh, well, how implausibly? In order to do that, I needed to come up with a, a way to measure uh, how right or how wrong by contemporary standards the Urantia book uh, is on certain topics. And, well, you know, which topics to choose. What I set on, uh, what I uh, decided on was to uh, look for all those things that science had changed its mind upon or admittedly knew nothing about in 1955 uh, or earlier, but had subsequently stated uh, as now a new knowledge or reversed knowledge. And I focused on those that the Urantia book has made some statement about. So I, I first decided, well, what's the population uh, going to be? It's going to be any statement made by science that is uh, now reversed uh, or was unknown. And I decided to simplify by saying if the odds were by by looking at what was being written in scholarly places concerning each of these issues, and if the um, contemporary, present contemporary, that is, uh, was uh, less than one out of three 
in terms of who was right, who was agreeing with that in 1955, then I would include it. If it was just a 50-50 chance, then I, I would say, well, I, I don't. That's not. Uh, that's not going to be included because it's just like. Yeah, I see what you mean. Well, I, I I decided I wanted to make it uh, two to one against, so that you know it would it would be an actual reversal instead of just something that wasn't known and maybe somebody could guess right. Well, you know, today, so, uh, Phil, uh, there's a word that gets bannered about called consensus. So I think what you're saying is that uh, you looked at the consensus. What did the majority of the academic community, whatever sciences you were talking about, whether it's geography or history or biology or astronomy, what was the general consensus at the time that was being accepted by science? And and the Urantia book, right. right? Okay, and, and continue That's on. right. Two to one or, or more in favor of, of some... Uh, uh, some uh, notion that was being st- stated. For instance, right now, you'd have to say the consensus was that the uh, solar system was formed by a condensation of, uh, you know, cold matter that uh, kept Aggregated. getting more and yeah. more condensed and more uh, dense until it initiated uh, thermonuclear reactions and the, and the sun was born. That's the way contemporary science still describes uh, the, the start of the initiation of uh, our solar system and uh, that then aggregation occurred. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, there's some real problems with that. But I, I, uh, the Urantia book says otherwise. And so that was one of the 48 that the Urantia book got wrong, supposedly. Uh, at least um, it was on the side of, uh, well, it, it, they reversed their position or they added a lot more to it. And, uh, and the Urantia book is still contrary to it, so I guess I would have to put that one on the other side. Not every one of those 48 uh, turned out to be... Um, in the Urantia book's favor, but so many, in fact, I think there were only about 12 of the 48 that went the other way. And I calculated that the probability of that happening by accident was about 1 in 50 million. So let me just paraphrase that, because what you're basically saying is that of of the 48 examples that you found where the Urantia book states unequivocally about a particular subject, uh, 36 times they were correct, 12 times they weren't. Statistically, that's about a 1 in 150 millionth in one chance of being that accurate that many times, correct? That's correct. And, and you know, you can think about this uh, by uh, imagining a single die, a six-sided die, and you give the Urantia book, uh, and many of these cases were less than two to one, or, you know, the Urantia book was much more in the minority than two to one. But even in, at that uh, simplification, if the Urantia book uh, in, the, in the rolling of dies 48 times independently were to uh, be right if a five or a six come up and wrong if a one, two, three, or four come up, you'd have to roll that die 48 times and get five or six all but 12 times, which is, uh, you know, easily calculated at about 
one in fifty million. Uh, another way to look at it is if you were to if you were to predict what the die was going to roll on thirty six out of forty eight times, that's that's pretty. Uh, that's, yeah, that's you a... would expect that it would be about uh, well forty eight divided by three is sixteen. So you'd expect you to be right about sixteen times and wrong about thirty two times. But it's the opposite. <laughs> Just uh, the opposite. In fact, yeah. even more than the opposite. That's the reason why it comes out that way, that uh, this is very, very unlikely. Now, you know, people could quarrel with, uh, well, are these really independent um, items that uh, you've chosen? And I, I attempted to only choose things that were independent of one another, you know, if it's in astronomy or if it's in geology or something. Uh, well, those are pretty independent. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, and I tried to cover all of the science, uh, areas, um, so that I wasn't, you know, just doing, uh, astronomy or a geology or, or something else. In 1955, even though the Arantia book specifically narrates, uh, Pangaea and the continental drift, what was the scientific uh, consensus of continental drift in 1955? Well, it was not the uh, consensus, uh, even though it was uh, a theory since the 1920s. Um, the mechanism by which these um, continents would, quote, drift apart uh, was unknown, and the suggested uh, uh, dynamics the, of the proponents, uh, for, I'm not sure the, the fellow's name, I think, Widner. Wagner, Wagner. Uh, uh, Wagner's theory in what, 19... Wagner, uh, yes. 1930s. He, continental drift. He, you know, he, he tried to offer mechanisms by which this would happen, and he came up with the wrong ones, which discredited the idea. And so the idea was uh, definitely in a minority of less than, uh, you know, two to one, until the uh, 1960s, about the 1965 uh, period, about 10 years later, uh, that uh, plate tectonics all of a sudden became the contemporary uh, accepted. Uh, again, it usually takes a while before uh, the resistance to new ideas is overcome by some, uh, by some event that seems to be, you know, the watershed event. And after that, people can no longer deny it. Now, in 55, the Arantia book states specifically that 750 million years ago, the first breaks in the continent landmass began as the Great North and South cracking. Now, have our geologists been able to determine when continental drift began? I think that the, what the Arantia book has is pretty um, consistent now. Uh, I can't, right off the top of my head, I don't recall, but... Uh, they they have nailed it as far as when the those cracks began to appear, and that was also when life was established because uh, they uh, they used those inlets of water to to establish life, right. and that is also when you know we we understand um, 
life, at least a, a, a large part of it, was was being becoming prolific. I know it's not on your list, but I recall reading an article not many months ago about biologists uh, discovering this very thing that they suspect, even though the Urantia book has already declared it, uh, that this is where life began in the warm water shelter bays of some of the inland seas that had not as much depth, so there was more interaction chemically going on between the material in the water and the sun and solar radiation and all that. So mm-hmm. even today, mm-hmm. there still continues to be vindication. Uh, do you ever run across any new discoveries and you say, well, wait a minute now? Because I know you're really familiar oh, with I'm your book. Disc- uh, yeah, yeah, there's always a new one, and I, ha- I keep uh, adding uh, more to it. Like, for instance, we just um, had... Um, a report About, that <clears throat> the uh, the uh, red man, the, the Indian uh, yeah. in North America, the Amerinds, uh, yeah. were uh, were here in San Diego, no less, uh, more like a hundred and thirty thousand years ago, not the mm-hmm. the uh, fifteen thousand years uh, that they have been saying for many decades. Uh, and and again, this is not completely. Completely, uh, it's sort of um, it's been published. The data is has has been good, and and so um, uh, people who are still skeptical, scientists are still skeptical. But you know, the Urantia book, in two places, says that the red man uh, came over the Bering uh, land bridge. When it was up, uh, and the, the last of the, the pure line came over eighty-five thousand years ago. That's the last of them, which, which means the process you know, started uh, they much weren't before. Dry, that. Right, you know, they mm-hmm. weren't riding horses; they were on foot. And so this uh, was a migration that must have taken uh, ten or th- twenty thousand years complete. Yeah, because the last of them left in eighty-five thousand years ago. So it doesn't surprise me that uh, now they're finding uh, these bones here that are, uh, they were able to date at 100 and, I think it was 130,000 years ago. So uh, the red man came here a lot earlier than uh, what had been previously thought, according to this new data. And of course, that corroborates uh, what the Urantia book said, contrary to science. So that's another example. But I think that was actually one that I had chosen as being a uh, contrary to. I think that was one that's just been uh, flipped. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you're particularly fond of the fact that the Urantia book writers ignored the Piltdown Man theory, but they gave sub- substance to the other parts yeah. of evolutionary theory. So expound on that, if you would, because yeah, they could have and, easily uh, been fooled, right? At that point, Piltdown Man in 19 whenever was considered... The missing link. Yeah, until until Ashley uh, Montague, uh, anthropologist, uh, challenged the Piltdown Man uh, fossil, and that was in the early fifties. It was uh, something like over five hundred scholarly papers had been written about, you know, Piltdown Man. Uh, there were two fossils, actually both uh, fakes. Uh, found in the 1920s, about five years apart. Uh, and uh, while some people were skeptical with the first one, when the second one 
<laughs> was, quote, found, unquote, uh, that convinced just about everybody that uh, it was real. They didn't have a lot of, of uh, fossils back in the time. Uh, so uh, as they got more, Piltdown Man didn't seem to fit. And um, so it was put aside, and, and then finally it was challenged. And when they took a look at it, you wonder why uh, anybody was fooled. Well, they kept it under wraps. It was, uh, <laughs> uh, it was in a secret play. You know, it was hard to, to examine it for any length of time. But apparently uh, it fooled um, just about everyone for all those years. And now the Urantia book, if it were written by a human being, well, it's probably 50 to 1 and uh, that it would have been included uh, as a, uh, uh, one of the fossils mm-hmm. back in the, when it was written. Well, if that had been the case, uh, it would have discredited the book. So I thought that that was particularly um, important. I mean, the Urantia book mentions about five or six other kinds of fossils and, and corroborates that they are, you know, real fossils. Uh, Java man, uh, Neanderthal, uh, Peking. So I thought that that showed that they knew something that uh, we didn't. And they explicitly said, well, you know, you'll never find a, a missing link, which was what Piltdown Man was supposed to be, the missing link between the ape and the human, because for the simple reason that no such missing link ever existed. It goes that far in debunking the Piltdown Man without actually, you know, mentioning it. Right. And I thought that that was uh, pretty uh, convincing on one, you know, on that one thing that, Whoever wrote the book uh, knew more than uh, than we did at the time, and still do, uh, because there's so much more that we're still discovering. And um, there's always a lot of resistance to new ideas, even when they're uh, when there's great evidence for them, because somebody's ox is going to be ge- gored. Sure, somebody has to admit uh, humility, you know. Uh, well, somebody not only has to be humble, but somebody is probably no longer going to be supported for mm-hmm. their program. Right. Think of that. Yeah. I mean, in other words, most of the this research that's being done is being supported by uh, grants, universities, and, and things of that sort, and agencies like that. And when your um, theory has just been uh, debunked or has taken a hit because of new evidence, there's a lot of resistance because this is, we're talking about uh, money and support for a program. We're not just talking about, uh, you know, professional embarrassment. Uh, so there's a lot of resistance to, to new information, and that goes for the Big Bang uh, and the so-called background radiation evidence uh it goes uh, it goes for um space expansion or universal expansion is another issue that is yeah, quite popular yeah. it, right it now it goes for the the big bang explosion uh, idea um promoted by a um theologian that would be pretty thought pretty fanciful the big bang that it seems to me that that science and astronomy is focused on is that the universe is 13.5 billion years and of course that number keeps going up every year 
because that's only as far as we can see. What do you think is the confusion? Do you think they're only looking at this local area of the universe, mainly the Milky Way or, or, or maybe an aggregate? Well, again, the Arantia book says what the confusion is. It says it's pretty clearly. It says that there are numerous factors of error that we are uh, unaware of and not, not considering. Uh, and the most important one uh, is that the outer space uh, universes, which, by the way, the Urantia book predicted, and our scientists uh, predicted the opposite up until, you know, they were discovered and, and viewed in the 1990s. Uh, so that's one of the 48. But right. uh, what they are saying is that these outer space uh, universes are not just expanding outward uh, in a, a flight from the, the, the point of the Big Bang in mm-hmm. time and space, without without time and space, but are really orbiting uh, the, the central universe and the grand universe where we are, uh, and in the opposite direction. So it's throwing off our calculations, and I did a, a paper on how much that would be, and it's not more than about a factor of two. So if there are numerous factors, uh, that would be one of them. And But mainly the evidence for the Big Bang is the interpretation of the red shift uh, in frequencies of distant objects. And... You get a red shift when an object is moving away and a blue shift when it's moving towards you in the frequency or in the wavelength, that is, of, of the radiation that's coming. And we know the, these radiation uh, characteristics of various uh, elements. And, and so, therefore, we know where the lines should be and when they're shifted... Well, the interpretation is that that means the object is moving away or, or, or toward us. And what they find is the further away an object is, uh, that, it, that the greater the redshift. So that's the main reason why we, contemporary science, believes in, in the Big Bang, because they can take the, that, those numbers and go backwards in time, and they find that, well, it all starts at about 13.7 billion years ago. That's a problem because, you know, the the Earth is only 4.5 billion years. By the way, that's another example of the Urantia book prediction. Uh, 4.5 billion years ago, it hits it right on the button. That was not the only estimate in uh, 1955. I think it was more like from... Anywhere from one billion three or to something. Twelve. Oh, so, I see. Boy, that's uh, a that's a big spread. <laughs> yeah. In other words, uh, they get it exactly right. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, I've been trying to find a good uh, reference to that, um, but I haven't been able to. That historical fact that uh, the estimates were much greater. Let me introduce you to those who might have just joined us. So we're talking with Dr. Philip Calabrese, researcher, Urantia book reader, student, uh, also the host of a study group in San Diego. And essentially, what we're I think what we're trying to uh, establish here is that if the you, you statistically have 
shown that the chances, and I think you said one in 25 million. One in 50 million. One in 50 million chance that of all the, the, the pre-knowledge of the Arantia book, to have so many of these statements turn out to be correct, even though the consensus at the time the book was published was clearly in the opposite direction, this sort of uh, validates its authorship in a certain way. Uh, another good example of that is dark matter. We've only recently just discovered dark matter mm-hmm. and and uh, what they call dark energy, which is uh, black holes in space. But don't you think that at some point, somebody in the science community ought to say, wait a minute, how is it that this book got all this stuff right when we didn't even know? Well, a, a few people have. A few people have said just that. But, um, you know, they're basically ignored because, as I said, well, for one thing, uh, you're talking about a book that uh, maybe discredit uh, somebody if they come out too uh, aggressively for it, because you know there'll be people who will say, "Well, that's a you know a religious text," and uh, it's not so hard to imagine uh, being put on a defense, uh, even if you're uh, you know you make a statement like that. Uh, so I think there's a lot of reluctance. I, I remember that that the discoverer of Pluto. The story was that he visited the, you know, the Urantia Foundation in Chicago. They knew of him, and he knew of the Urantia book. And, um, but he did not want that fact to be um, publicized. Because he felt uh, it would discredit him? Well, yeah. In other words, uh, it would be a, a, an association that he'd have to explain uh, instead of uh, being a, you know, a... Uh, something that um, other people would say, oh, my, I'm glad you mentioned this. <laughs> uh, you, you don't get that reaction from either religious conservatives or even liberals who think they're liberal, uh, and you certainly don't get that reaction from scientists if you say, well, here's a book that, uh, you know, is probably superhumanly written, and it has a lot of science that uh, is... Uh, of immense value to yeah, use the, one, one of the points is, is the cell proliferation and using cells, uh, the inherent inherent uh, qualities that cells ha- have to heal themselves. And we are just now discovering that very thing. How do we use what the body already has to heal itself of its many diseases? Now, far be it for me to say this, but if if people had taken that subject matter seriously in the 30s and 40s, imagine how much farther we might be along in biology and DNA and, and other, you know, forms of, of study that have to do with the human body and, and health. They, uh, they make uh, suggestions uh, for the direction we might want to look uh, for uh, controlling, uh, well, they called it very dangerous uh, diseases, and they're talking about self-proliferation, and they, they point out that there are certain chemicals that will shut down the injury repair mechanism when the cells are proliferating to repair the air, uh, the the injury. And but after the injury is repaired, the cells then stop proliferating. And the chemi- chemicals that do that, well, if we could learn about those chemicals, then maybe we could shut off the proliferation of cells, which is what cancer. You know, what cancer is a big part of cancer. Sure. Because the cancer, you know, just keeps growing and growing and dividing, cells divide and divide. They don't know when to stop. 
So the genetics has been mutated or has been changed so that something's gone wrong. And um, the Urantia book says that there are chemicals that we could discover that shut down an injury repair process when it's time for the, when the injury has been repaired. And we need to find those chemicals. That's, that's my uh, understanding mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. To uh, that, that will help in in uh, controlling uh, many dangerous diseases. Well, I can't imagine a much more dangerous disease than cancer. So yeah, if if we we had more um, honest assessment of uh, these matters, but you know, scientists are human beings. They uh, they like to think that they're completely objective, uh, but uh, when uh, comes to their own project and what they've devoted their life to, you know, how many big bang proponents are interested in the fact that, well, um, you know, they found this evil axis in the background radiation. And uh, now it's been confirmed. They thought, you know, maybe it was an anomaly of the data, but sure enough, there's some sort of an axis that uh, is observable. Uh, and then recently uh, they found that there's a statistically, again, confirmed, a statistical difference between the amount of energy on one side of, um, uh, of the plane perpendicular to that axis than there is on the other. Five or six, something, something significantly different. They could not just be by uh, random uh, differences. Well, you know, these are contrary to the Big Bang theory. The point is everything is supposed to be uniform in all directions because of the Big Bang. And, uh, but has anybody really focused, uh, pointed their telescope in uh, plane perpendicular, or rather in the, in the direction perpendicular to the Milky Way? No, they don't. <laughs> they haven't decide, found out whether or not they can find those outer space level uh, galaxies in uh, in the direction uh, away from the Milky Way plane, only toward the Milky Way plane, which is where, of course, uh, you'll find them. So they haven't checked to see whether or not the cosmos is really the same in all directions. They're assuming that, and they basically use that as a way to, to estimate the total number of galaxies now. So instead of having them in on, on, in the plane of the Milky Way, and uh, they have them, uh, they're imagining them in all directions, and that's the reason why now uh, they're estimating there are even more outer space galaxies than the Urantia book says. Mm-hmm. The Urantia book says, well, you'll you'll discover no less than 375 million star systems in the far outreaches of outer space. And they said that in 1955, and, and we didn't discover them till 1990s. And uh, that's a very, very good prediction, but, uh, you know, not many scientists are willing to take the Urantia book seriously. Maybe when we discover that, that uh, non-breather life in close proximity to our planet, which is another one of those uh, predictions that the the Arantia book makes. Uh, I have to think that 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 planet uh, is close enough for us to actually learn about. If it's not in our solar system, it has to be close by. Uh, and uh, 
So well, it's, it's that some would of the... certainly be uh, spectacular if they if we found something like that on a, a moon of uh, Jupiter or Saturn. Right. That would be, uh, I don't know, maybe that's what has to happen. But, of course, we're looking for life like we know it. I think that the non-breather world would have to, you know, they say they're completely different. Both the plant and the animal life are completely different. If there's really these meteor uh, showers and they have to be protected from them, uh, does that mean that life is underground? Yeah. Life has got to be under. The yeah. surface in some way, if they're uh, being bombarded, because it says they need these protective areas or devices whenever they risk going out into, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. on the surface. I want to read to you, uh, Phil, uh, a, a quote from your own writings. You write in your coming validation, quote, The real reason I believe in the science of the Arantia book and the authenticity of the Arantia book as divine revelation to our world because humanly improbable avoidance of error and that the meandering convergence over the years of contemporary science to positions taken by your Arantia book authors. I think what you're saying is it's because more often than not the Arantia book has been vindicated and that tells you that whoever wrote the book, superhuman, angelic, midwayers, you still feel convicted that uh, even more so today, you started reading the book in 71. Uh, you're absolutely 100% convinced that the Arantia book is authentic and it is a revelation? Well, about as, as absolutely uh, as I can, uh, can be convinced of anything, yeah. I, I think that we keep getting more confirmation. Uh, for instance, the uh, Sierra Nevadas, uh, the age was meant was said to be about 5 million to 8 million then all of a sudden, one day, they changed to something like 35 million or consists uh, significantly more. And in fact, the Arantia book, in fact, has that number in it. So, uh, yeah, I keep getting more com- confirmation that uh, this really is a, a gift from um, higher order life. And uh, we probably needed it as much as uh, we have ever needed it right now, considering uh, the state of the world. Do you sense that secularism is uh, trying to stamp out? I mean, you read reports all the time. There was a Pew study report uh, recently that said that more and more people are, are moving away from religion. Uh, good thing, bad thing. It, I think it was even predicted in the, one of the final papers of the Urantia book that we would be going through this period. Uh, but what's going to turn things around, in your opinion? Just a total, I give up, uh, my, my life doesn't have meaning. Uh, what's the sense that you get from the culture today in, in being open to something like the Urantia book? That's a kind of complicated question, but, you know. <laughs> What needs to change? Yeah, I, you know, I'm, as you were asking it, I was trying to formulate an answer, and none came. Um, <laughs> that happens with me often. The, uh, <laughs> I, uh, uh, I wish I could have I had a good um, uh, an what answer needs to, to change? that. Well, uh, yeah. It's hard enough to get people to believe um, things that are pretty clear, Um we're not, as the Arantia book says, you know, uh, logic isn't uh, our strong point uh, <laughs> when it comes to, uh, you know, it's wh- how clear and, and um, 
convincing you know, and simple the idea is. Uh, so it's got to be something fairly simple. Well, uh, you know, the gospel of Jesus is pretty simple. Um, yeah. God is spiritual father, and we are spiritual brothers, and we ought to treat each other accordingly. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it it's hard for me. I think the churches are definitely losing membership, a lot of them, not all. Uh, so, and it's not clear to me what is going to um, be the turning point Um it's really not. Uh, we we seem to be going through a, um, a slow degradation period, uh, and um, at some point we'll we'll get religion, I guess, and start looking at the Urantia book uh, with clearer eyes. But um, yeah. right now, the the best we can do is to get the word out that there is such a book. And uh, those people who are have a, a little bit of an open mind can take a look at it and decide uh, whether or not it's for them. Um, but it does take, you know, an unusual person. Those people who are already, you know, happy with their religion uh, or their, their church yeah. or their other uh, association are not really interested in having themselves disturbed mm-hmm. by this uh, this big book. And those people who are secularist or agnostic or atheist, or, you know, are, are certainly, they've thrown it all away, and they're not about to look at it seriously either. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, something has to change. Um, we have to get less uh, stubborn in our, in our beliefs, I guess. Uh, are there other people that you know of that are also doing work similar to yours? Yes, I would point out two people who are first-class scientists uh, and who are uh, similarly involved with uh, harmonizing or looking for ways to harmonize what the Urantia book says or using the Urantia book to... Uh, help their own uh, ideas about the cosmos. Nigel Nunn and George Park, and I think there's an E at the end of Park. Uh I want to thank Dr. Philip Calabrese for joining me. Uh, Again, recorded from 2017, and he was referring to the then-scientific symposium that occurred in Chicago in 2016. And lo and behold, the foundation is about to put together another one of these Symposium. So it'll be interesting to see how we have progressed in five years, and I believe it's going to be pretty substantial. Thank you again for joining me on the Urantia Audio Podcast. As always, God bless you. Thank you for participating, and please share this podcast with uh, those in your life who you believe are looking and seeking the truth. It'll make a world of difference to them. See you next time on the Urantia Audio Podcast.